This is Viewpoint with attorney and author Chuck Chrismeyer. Viewpoint is a one-hour talk show confronting the issues of America's heart and home. And now with today's edition of Viewpoint, here is Chuck Chrismeyer. It's been said that hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. But for most Americans, even Christians, hell seems to have lost most, if not all, of its own fury. Yet... If you read the scriptures, you find out there will be hell to pay for a lot of things. So today on Viewpoint, we're going to take a look at this matter of the devil. The D word. Is the devil dead? An article came out, in fact, a book came out uh, uh, a few years ago uh, declaring that the devil was dead. Uh, Of course, another article came out in Time Magazine asking the question, is God dead? One of the most famous headlines of all time in Time magazine. But if we were to go back to 1995, when we launched this program, Newsweek magazine had a very special feature article that uh, by Kenneth Woodward, by the way, very, very famous uh, writer for Newsweek. In fact, he was directly associated with the Watergate scandal. That is, uh, he kind of uncovered a lot of those things, together with uh, Daniel Ellsworth. Well, here is the headline or the lead article here for Newsweek. He is the evil one, the adversary, the prince of darkness, the father of lies. Among his many proper names are Satan, Lucifer, Skeptics dismiss him, but in every language he answers to his generic title, Diabolos, El Diablo, or the Devil. Throughout most of Western history, the devil was both familiar and feared. Jesus was tempted by him. Luther mocked him, but trembled in his presence. For the Puritans of New England, Satan was never just a metaphor for evil. He was evil, personified. Then came the Enlightenment, with the sunny view of human nature and distaste for the supernatural. Almost overnight, the figure of Satan vanished like a nightmare from the moral imagination of the West. Sin also gradually disappeared from public consciousness. In today's post-Enlightenment, most postmodern culture, words like good and evil are often deemed too judgmental for public discourse. Even from pulpits, sin receives only a mumbled acknowledgement. And Satan, well, today's upbeat brand of preachers rarely mentions him at all, except sort of as a quaint figure of speech. So is Satan dead? That's the question. The famous writer, Woodward, Kenneth Woodward, asked that question in November of 1995, the very year we launched this radio program. He continues to write, is a culture that now sees angels everywhere ready to confront history's most celebrated angel, the devil. According to a recent Newsweek poll, two out of every three adult Americans do indeed believe that the devil exists. Among Christians, only the born again reveal a robust sense of the devil's presence. By contrast, only 26% of Roman Catholics say they have been tempted by Satan. 
31% of non-evangelical Protestants insist that there is no such thing as the devil. And look at the parking lot outside any church, said Princeton University sociologist Robert Wisno. If you see Lexus and Cadillacs, you won't hear Satan preached inside. College graduates, says Newsweek, are twice as likely as Americans with no higher education to deny the devil's existence. And the secular university, after all, is the Enlightenment's most enduring achievement. Wherever we turn, the century now draws to a close, has witnessed evil on a scale unmatched by any other. In an earlier America, evidence such as this would have immediately evoked a name, a face, and an explanation. Satan's powerful dominion over a sinful fallen humanity, today evil is experienced as random and ordinary, devoid of cosmic significance. So then came the powerful new book of cultural criticism to remind Americans of what they had lost. The book was called The Death of Satan. Declaring that we have no language for connecting our inner lives with the horrors that pass before our eyes. Faced with serial killers, maniacal despots, and ruthless genocide, we first look for psychological, sociological, or even genetic explanations. But not the involvement of Satan. The social sciences can't capture much less explain the depth of the horrors perpetrated by the Nazis, Stalin, Mayo, Pol Pot, their names bespeak an inhuman appetite for evil that sends the secular imagination reaching for old religious metaphors. Maybe. The writer says, the idea of evil insists that something is going on. Do we have an obligation to name evil? and oppose it, and maybe we should resurrect the devil. So I welcome you to Viewpoint. I'm Chuck Chris Meyer. It's conversation, as always, with ever-increasing conviction. Is the devil alive? Is he well? Does he even exist? Has he ever existed? Is he just a metaphor for evil, for that which we don't like in society? Or is he truly a real spiritual personality? Billy Graham said the same year in 1995, the Bible makes it abundantly clear that Satan is real, that he's very powerful, he's not a myth, nor is he just a projection of our minds. As we attempt to explain the mysterious of evil, he is a malevolent spiritual power whose sole goal is to oppose the work of God, and he does so at every turn, both in the world and in our lives. So why is it that it seems so hard to find Pastors and parachurch leaders writing, preaching, or talking about him. Today on Viewpoint, we continue to take a look at this matter of the devil. The Christian Booksellers Convention in Denver in 1995, the accent was on what Jesus, not the devil, can do. A check of Christian publishers list showed that under the S there were certain there were hundreds of titles for success and reason, uh, seasonal and almost none at all for Satan or sin. It seems that this whole idea of sin and Satan, well, are we really preaching Christianity? 
Lawrence Cunningham, head of the theology department at Notre Dame University, said, in the last 30 years, I've heard only one sermon on Satan. I remember it because it was such a unique experience. To many feminists, Satan is a boogie, a bogey created by patriotic religion. The devil is a necessary component in male religion because a god without an adversary is inconceivable to the masculine mind, she says. Wow. If the devil is not alive, he certainly has a lot of enemies and a lot of deniers. We're going to talk more about him today on Viewpoint, and I hope you'll stay tuned. Don't leave us, friends. We've got to deal with the devil. We'll be right back. Once upon a time, children could pray and read their Bibles in school. Divorces were practically unknown, as was child abuse. In our once great America, virginity and chastity were popular virtues, and homosexuality was an abomination. So what happened in just one generation? Hi, I'm Chuck Chrismeyer, and I urge you to join me daily on Viewpoint, where we discuss the most challenging issues touching our hearts and homes. Could America's moral slide relate to the Fourth Commandment? Listen to Viewpoint on this radio station or anytime at saveus.org. Today we discuss the question of whether the devil is dead, whether he ever existed. What are we to think about the devil? It seems that the devil gets the silent treatment. But he didn't get the silent treatment from Paul Harvey. Just this week I received an email from one of our listeners indicating, your voice reminds me of Paul Harvey. You remember that uh, statement that he made years ago, if I were the devil? And so, friends, I have it in front of me right now. I'm not Paul Harvey. But I'm going to repeat what Paul Harvey said, and perhaps in somewhat the same cadence that he said it. If I were the devil, if I were the devil, if I were the prince of darkness, I'd want to engulf the whole world in darkness and I'd have a third of its real estate and four-fifths of its population. But I wouldn't be happy until I had seized the ripest apple on the tree, the. So I'd set about, however necessary, to take over the United States. I'd subvert the churches first. I'd begin with a campaign of whispers. With the wisdom of a serpent, I would whisper to you as I whispered to Eve, do as you please. To the young, I would whisper that, the Bible is a myth. I would convince them that man created God instead of the other way around. And I would confide that what bad is good and what's good is square. And the old, I would teach you to pray after me, our Father, which art in Washington. And, the, and then I'd get it organized. I'd educate authors in how to make lurid literature exciting so that anything else would appear dull and uninteresting. I'd threaten TV with dirtier movies and vice versa. I'd peddle narcotics to whom I could, and I'd sell alcohol. To ladies and gentlemen of distinction, I'd tranquilize the rest with pills. If I were the devil, I'd soon have families at war with themselves, churches at war with themselves, and nations at war with themselves, until each in its turn was consumed. And with promises of higher ratings, 
I'd have mesmerizing media fanning the flames. If I were the devil, I would encourage schools to refine young intellects, but neglect to discipline emotions. Just let those run wild. Until before you knew it, you'd have to have drug-sniffing dogs and metal detectors at every schoolhouse door. Within a decade, I'd have prisons overflowing. I'd have judges promoting pornography. Soon, I could evict God from the courthouse, and then from the schoolhouse, and then from the houses of Congress. And in his own churches, I would substitute psychology for religion and deify science. I would lure priests and pastors into misusing boys and girls and church money. If I were the devil, I'd make the symbols of Easter an egg and the symbol of Christmas a bottle. If I were the devil, I'd take from those who have and give to those who want until I had killed the very incentive of the ambitious. And what do you bet? I could get whole states to promote gambling as the way to get rich. I would caution against extremes in hard work and patriotism, in moral conduct. I would convince the young that marriage is old-fashioned, that swinging is more fun, that what you see on TV is the way to be. And thus, I could undress you in public, and I could lure you into bed with diseases for which there is no cure. In other words, if I were the devil, I'd just keep right on doing what he's doing. Good day. If I were the devil. I thank the Lord for Paul Harvey. He brought an enduring message to all of us. And I hope I did somewhat justice to his message. But it bears repeating. And I'm so thankful for the listener who encouraged me to do so. I'm reading an article right now that came out a few years ago. It was called America's Best Secret. I'm not sure what that secret really is, but it goes on to say, they took pictures of us in the nude. The little girl blurted out, after weeks of frustrating counseling sessions, the pent-up fear, anxiety, and anger finally exploded with that one shocking statement. I at first thought we were dealing with a child pornography ring or normal sexual child abuse, says Los Angeles area clinical psychologist Dr. Gould. But as the little girl continued to talk, she began piecing together a horrifying story of devils, baby sacrifices, cannibalism, eating feces, drinking blood and urine, torture and sex films, and the claims and descriptions got worse and worse and worse. And Dr. Gould is referring to what she and many other authorities are calling an epidemic of ritual abuse, sweeping our nation and the world at an alarming and frightening pace. And children from infants to teenagers are the primary targets. In every state in the nation, there are reports and investigations of satanic crimes. Two million children a year are reported missing, many of them too young to be runaways. 5,000 unidentifiable bodies of children are found each year in the U.S. Hundreds, thousands of teenagers committing suicide, attempting it after attending heavy metal concerts or listening to heavy metal music. 
thousands of children. From neighborhoods, preschools, and daycare centers around the country telling striking, consistent, and similar stories of human and animal sacrifices in connection with strange devil rituals. Satanic graffiti in the found is found on highway overpasses, walls, buildings, and abandoned houses in many, many U.S. towns and cities. And now cemeteries are being desecrated and graves are being robbed. Bodies of mutilated animals are reported being found in connection with these occultic rituals. In California alone, reports were staggering. In the Los Angeles area, there were 64 preschools in 27 neighborhoods with reported satanic activity over two years. In Orange County, there were six murders with satanic ties in a year and a half. Ten stray A teenagers in Ontario, California, high school, put together a two-page step-by-step plan on how to get rid of their parents and systematically take over their homes. Step number ten was the ultimate sacrifice, cutting up the bodies of the parents and feeding them to dogs, and then sacrificing the dogs. In Mendocino County, Several children claimed to have been raped at a preschool while being forced to chant, Baby Jesus is dead. Twelve boys in Pico Rivera said they were sodomized by four neighborhood men during satanic rituals. In San Francisco, an eight-year-old girl reported to police she was made to stab a baby by her father in a candlelit room adorned with an upside-down cross. Seventy children in Bakersfield were removed from their homes because they were claimed to be using satanic rituals by their parents. In Southern California, investigation underway, charging satanic ritual abuse in an institutional setting for deaf children. Similar reports coming from Sacramento, Santa Barbara, Riverside, and San Diego. Probably two of the most well-known police cases to have come out of the Los Angeles area, which had the definite satanic overtones, were the McMartin Preschool case in Manhattan Beach and the Richard Ramirez Night Stalker case in Los Angeles. In the McMartin case, a single charge of child molestation led investigators to hundreds of horror stories of satanic abuse and terrorism. 389 former students were interviewed and all told of sexual abuse. 80% of those students bore physical evidence to document their claims, including scar tissue of the vagina and anus, rectal bleeding, and painful bowel movements. The school was closed. With 208 counts of child sexual molestation, And on and on it goes. Is Satan dead? And was he ever real? The Bible tells us that Satan made his entree into God's world in the heavenlies. The Bible talks about him under a different name, Lucifer. The light, the light bearer. In fact, Albert Pike, one of the renowned leaders, 
heads, experts concerning Freemasonry says that Freemasonry worships Lucifer, not Adonai, the God of the Bible. That Lucifer actually is the God of light. And that Adonai that opposes him is the God of darkness, the ones that Christians worship. You see, this pattern continues over our world, and it's growing today. It's growing not so much in mystical ways. It's growing in actual, experiential ways. And we can see the results. We can see tangibly the effects of it, but we have decided we are too smart today. That the Lucifer of the scriptures, who became known as the devil, Satan, the tempter, who came to Eve in the garden in the form of a serpent and was demanded by God thereafter to crawl on his belly because of what he had done to destroy God's creation. And the battle lines have been drawn ever since. The whole world has been struggling with the influence of this impersonator of God, Lucifer, then known as Satan, and cast out in the earth. He governs in the affairs of men by his spirit. You say, well, I thought God governs in the affairs of men. Well, yes, if we will yield to it. Otherwise, Adam and Eve gave dominion to Satan in Genesis chapter 3. And from there on, humankind would struggle between whether or not we would submit to what God, the creator of the universe, has said, or whether we will submit to what his arch enemy, Satan, says. And why does Satan say it? Why does the devil say it? Because he wants to be equal with God. He declared so. I will be like the Most High. I will ascend to the heights of the north or on the Temple Mount. I will be like the Most High. And so his ultimate goal throughout 6,000 years of history is to parlay different deceptions with humankind to ultimately achieve his final goal to be declared God on the Temple Mount. If you'd like to find out a little bit more about that history and where it's all heading now, you might want to get a copy of my book, King of the Mountain, The Eternal Epic and End Time Battle, because that book lays it all out from the very beginning to the end. And it's not just about Satan himself. It's not just about Lucifer himself. It's about how he works among the nations and the leaders of nations and how it's all being choreographed and bringing to a laser focus right now, right in front of your eyes and mine. A laser focus. Satan wants to take away your freedom. Because if he doesn't take away your freedom, then you still have 
freedom to have faith in God, which he does not want. And so Klaus Schwab, the founder and head of the World Economic Forum, today declared, listen, he declared that AI should replace elections. In other words, you and I and all the peoples on the planet would forfeit elections because we get a better result from AI, artificial intelligence. But who's going to govern the artificial intelligence? Who do you think? Not the spirit of God, but the spirit of the Antichrist. Are you beginning to get the picture? It's all coming home to roost right now, this very day. We'll be right back. There is so much more about Chuck Chris Meyer and Save America Ministries on our website, saveus.org. For example, under the marriage section, God has marriage on his mind. Chuck has some great resources to strengthen your marriage. First off, a fact sheet on the state of the marital union, a fact sheet on the state of ministry, marriage, and morals. SaveUS.org. Marriage, divorce, and remarriage. What does the Bible really teach about this? Find all of this at SaveUS.org. Also, a letter to pastors, the Hosea Project, SaveUS.org, and many more resources to strengthen your marriage. It's all on Chuck's website, SaveUS.org. Again, you can listen to Chuck's Viewpoint broadcast live and archived. Save America Ministries website at SaveUS.org. Welcome back to Viewpoint. I'm Chuck Chris Meyer. Is hell dead? If Satan is dead, is hell dead? Was there ever a hell? And if there is not a hell, is there ever a heaven? So I have in front of me, going all the way back to 2011, Time Magazine. Cover story, What If There's No Hell? Then... Going back to 1997, another cover story from Time Magazine. Does heaven exist? Heaven and hell. It used to be that after that the hereafter was virtually palpable, but American religion now seems almost allergic to imagining it, said Time Magazine. Is paradise lost? David Burton was teaching a class for New Catholic Initiatives in uh, Nashville, Tennessee. Burton liked to think about heaven, even to revel in it. He's had to struggle to think about it, or at least to find fellow believers and pastors whom his thoughts don't even embarrass in the Catholic Church. The same Catholic chaplains who had welcomed him into their fold were reticent about discussing salvation's reward of heaven. He said, I almost felt guilty thinking too much about heaven. Well, how about hell? If there's a heaven, there must be a hell, right? Or can we really believe in heaven and not believe in hell? And why would there be a heaven if there was no hell? It's not to say that Americans don't think uh, about death or doubt heaven's existence. People still believe in it. It's just that their concept of exactly what is 
It has grown foggier, and they hear about it much less frequently from their pastors. Don't hear about it. And the minimization of paradise not only creates problems for heaven-hungry believers like Burton, it also suggests the marginalization of one of Western civilization's greatest ideas. Liberal mainline pastors are more reluctant than evangelicals to review the joys of eternal communion with the living God. Yet this seems to be everywhere. David Wells, a theology professor at Massachusetts Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, said, we would expect to hear of heaven in the evangelical churches, but I don't think I hear it at all, he says. I don't think heaven is even a blip on the Christian screen. From one end of the denominational spectrum to the other, the more perplexing question is, what explains this? A spokesman for the United Methodist Publishing House is reluctant to comment at all about heaven, explaining that the subject is controversial. So might a robust conception of heaven be the victim of an unbelieving era? Perhaps the biblical heaven is too big to be marketable, they say. You see, it's all about marketing. Satan doesn't sell. Heaven doesn't market. So what does? Good feelings. Help people to feel better on planet Earth so that planet Earth becomes their heaven. It's interesting. And then we make the transition to hell again. Just for, dare we say, the hell of it. The year was 2002. The Los Angeles Times came out with an interesting piece. Hold the fire and brimstone. Bill Ferris believes in hell, where sinners toil for eternity in unspeakable torment. But you'd never know it listening to him preach at his South Orange County Evangelical Church, and he never mentions the topic, and his flock certainly shows no interest. So Ferris told the interviewer, hell isn't sexy enough anymore. Now, he was the pastor of the Crown Valley Vineyard Christian Fellowship. But in churches across America, hell has become frozen out, as clergy find themselves increasingly hesitant to sermonize on Christianity's outpost for lost souls. I guess it just doesn't resonate with churchgoers anymore, said the article. There's been a shift in religion from focusing on what happens in the next life to asking, what's the quality of this life we're leading now? That was Harvey Cox, an eminent author, religious historian, and professor at Harvard University School, Divinity School. He said, you can go to a lot of churches week after week and you never start even hearing the mention of hell. So, Hell's fall from fashion 
indicates how key portions of Christian theology have been influenced by a secular society that stresses individualism over authority and the human psyche over moral absolutes. The rise of psychology, the philosophy of existentialism, and the consumer culture have all dumped buckets of water on hell and put out the fires. So the tendency is to downplay damnation in recent years as non-denominational ministries with their focus on everyday issues such like child-rearing and career success have proliferated and loyalty to churches has deteriorated. It's just too negative, said a senior professor of church history at the Denver Theological Seminary. Hell is too negative. Churches are under enormous pressure to be consumer-oriented. They have to be appealing rather than demanding. A Barna Research poll said that studies, that studies Christian trends nationwide found that church shopping has become a way of life. One in seven adults changes churches every year, one in six regularly, rotating among congregations. The fickleness has helped give rise to megachurches, con- congregations of more than 2,000 people in, that mix scripture with social and recreational programs in a casual atmosphere. Once pop evangelism went into market analysis, Martin Marty Professor Emeritus of Religion and Culture at University of Chicago Divinity School said, hell just dropped out. And so did Satan. As hell dropped out, so did Satan. Yet the Bible says he's the enemy of your soul and mine. Interestingly, Lake Forest Saddleback Church, whose senior pastor at that time was Rick Warren, said the Bible's teachings on Hill guide his ministry. But if you scanned his list of sermons that were for sale, more than 350 topics in all, there was not one single thing on Hill. When you have a group of people who are born again, you're not going to hell, said Bob Anderson, a lawyer, who attended an evangelical church in Fullerton, California, so why talk about it? The problem is, you don't know. That's the problem with much of our theology. Even the Apostle Paul said in Philippians, I don't count myself as already have arrived. I don't count myself as having been permanently named among the elect. If, as the Apostle Paul said, there could be a great falling away, a great falling away to what? Nobody wants to answer that question because it defies the whole doctrine of uh, eternal security. We've got a real problem in our in our culture. We have a real problem in America. We have a real problem with regard to our theology. Martin Marvy, Marty says, when you take hell away as a threat, everything changes. One measure of hell's continued decline can be found in the ch- 
changed attitude of Reverend Billy Graham, who came to prominence in the 1940s as a fire and brimstone gospel preacher. His depiction of hell was unequivocal and unpleasant address for unrepentant sinners. But even Graham had reconsidered hell, it seems. He says, I believe that hell is essentially separation from God. That we're separated from God so we can have hell in this life and hell in the life to come. Then he went on to describe hell in vivid terms. Like he had done 30 or 40 years before. And now he says, I'm not at liberty to do that because, well, there is actually fire in hell is not, I don't know. Hmm. No wonder he admitted to Larry King, Larry King Live, that the one thing that he regretted more than anything else, that he would failed to disciple people that came to his great gatherings. So what are we to understand now? You know, for 30 years, we have been confronting the deepest issues of America's heart and home from God's eternal perspective right here on Viewpoint. This is one of them. They all link together. You cannot really separate them out. And the problem is that we're so prone to try to separate all of these things out the things that we read about, we hear about in the news and so on, separate them out from these other kinds of things, Satan, the devil, hell, heaven, all of these other kinds of things, that we we become confused. Our pastors are confused, terribly confused. And they're afraid of the people. Even these leading pastors said, "You, you can't talk about these things because they don't market well. One leader actually told me you can't talk about repentance because it's too negative. We'll be back. Have you ever considered what the early church was like? Many people are developing a heart longing for a greater fulfillment in our practices as Christians. A recent study showed 53,000 people a week are leaving the back door of America's churches in frustration. What is going on? Why has there not been even a 1% gain among followers of Christ in the last 25 years? Could it be that God is seeking to restore first century Christianity for the 21st century? Jesus said, I'll build my church. Is Christ by his spirit stirring to prepare the church for the 21st century? The early church prayed together and broke bread from house to house. They were family, and it was said by all who observed, behold how they love one another. Incredible. But the same can be found right now. Go to saveus.org and click Sell Church. We can revive first century Christianity for the 21st century. It's about people, not programs. It's about a body, not a building. That's saveus.org. Click Sell Church. Only 50%, 59% of Americans believe in hell compared with 74% who believe in heaven according to a recent Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life poll. A big change taking place as far as evangelicals not wanting to be exclusive. 
at the recent pastor's school, annual Beeson Pastor's School, a workshop asked the question, what happened to hell? He asked how many of the pastors had ever preached a sermon on hell, and nobody had. He said, it's like something people want to avoid. The pastor of Brooklyn Wesleyan Church in Alabama said pastors shy away from the topic of everlasting damnation. It's out of fear that will not appear relevant, he said. It's pressure from the culture to not speak anything negative. I think we have begun to deny hell, he said. There's an assumption that everybody's going to make it to heaven somehow. And the soft sell on hell, he says, reflects an increasingly market-conscious approach. And when you're trying to market Jesus... The tendency is to mute traditional Christian symbols. Difficult doctrines are left by the wayside, and people wonder why God would send people to eternal punishment. But, speakers at the conference said, the seriousness of Jesus dying for man's sins relates to the gravity of salvation versus damnation. And if you don't mention God's judgment, you're missing a big part of the Christian gospel. Without wrath, there's no grace. And the Pope himself, several popes have gotten involved in the discussion as well. So, without going further and more deeply into hell, because there are several words in the Bible, as many of you know, translated as hell, Gehenna and Hades and so on, But it seems that there is a waiting place of the dead. Now, you may disagree with that. I said it seems as if there is a waiting place of the dead, that people do not go immediately to heaven and don't go immediately to hell. But there's a waiting place for the dead. Because judgment will take place after that. Some may disagree. Notice I said it seems that way. When you look at the broader picture of Scripture. The question is not exactly where you go at the moment you leave this life. It's where you go for eternity. That's the real question. And you know, there are an awful lot of people out there that are willing to take the greatest risk of all time. They would rather have what they call their best life now than they would to enjoy the presence of God for eternity. That, my friends, is the spirit of Esau. That's why God said, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Because Esau was willing to sell something that was of immense importance, his birthright, in order to gain a temporary mess of pottage, in other words, his best life now. So whether you listen to the pontificator from one of the largest churches of America in Houston, Texas, or you listen to Oprah Winfrey, who once sat in the front row of that church and talked about how wonderful it was because she'd never come under any kind of negativity or condemnation, 
it shouldn't be a surprise then that they both wrote books called Your Best Life Now. This is what we're up against, friends. This is what parents are up against. This is what pastors are up against. And uh, a pastor is not going to teach or preach about persecution unless he's willing first to teach and preach about the eternal damnation, eternal destiny of those that are sitting in his uh, congregation. If he's not willing to say what God says about that, why in the world would he ever say anything to them about persecution? So he's going to be like the Pied Piper that will lead his people that are trusting him by laying theological breadcrumbs down along the pathway over the abyss to hell. That's what he's doing. I hate to put it so bluntly, but that's what he's doing. That is spoken in love. Because if we don't love the people enough to tell them the truth, we don't love them. Not really. A parent that doesn't love his children or her children enough to lead them in the path of truth and to discipline them, correct them in righteousness with diligence, doesn't love them. You can say you do. You have all these lovey-dovey feelings. But love is not a feeling. Love is an action. Love is an action. You may sing the song, I got all those loving feelings. Now, you may have all the loving feelings, but that doesn't mean you're walking in love. It's time for us to love God enough from pulpit to pew, and in our homes, to be able to be willing to teach and preach and uh, lead our those that are trusting us to embrace the truth of God's word, whether it sells or not. There's a risk. It's called the cost of discipleship, friends. There's a risk in embracing Jesus. Jesus took the risk for you and for me. The disciples all took the risk for us, and now it's our turn. Do you understand that? It's our turn now. So, if you be the devil, what would you do? If you were the devil, what would you do? If I were the devil... If I were the prince of darkness, I'd want to engulf the whole world in darkness. I'd have a third of its real estate and the fourth, four-fifths of its population. But I wouldn't be happy until I had seized the ripest apple on the tree, the. So I'd set about, however necessary, to take over the United States. I'd subvert the churches first. I'd begin with a campaign of whispers. Within the wisdom of a serpent, I would whisper to you as I whispered to Eve, Do as you please, and whatever you do, don't talk about hell. Or the devil. To the young, I would whisper that the Bible is a myth. I would convince them that man created God instead of the other way around, and I would confide that what's bad is good and what's good is square. And the old, I would teach to pray after me, our Father which art in Washington. And then I'd get organized. 
I'd educate authors in how to make lurid literature exciting so that anything else would appear dull and uninteresting. I'd threaten TV with dirtier movies and vice versa. I'd peddle narcotics to whom I could, and I'd sell alcohol to ladies and gentlemen of distinction. I'd tranquilize the rest with pills. If I were the devil, I'd soon have families at war with themselves, churches at war with themselves, and nations at war with themselves, until such in its turn was consumed, and with promises of higher ratings, I'd have mesmerizing media fanning the flames. If I were the devil, I would encourage schools to refine young intellects but neglect the discipline of emotions. Just let those run wild. Until before you know it, you'd have to have drug-sniffing dogs and metal detectors at every schoolhouse door. Within a decade, I'd have prisons overflowing. I'd have judges promoting pornography. Soon I could evict God from the courthouse. And then, from the schoolhouse and then for the houses of Congress, and in his own churches. I could substitute psychology for religion and deify science. I would lure priests and pastors into misusing boys and girls, and church money. And if I were the devil, I'd make the symbols of Easter an egg and the symbol of Christmas a bottle. If I were the devil, I'd take from those who have and give to those who want until I had killed the incentive of the ambitious. And what do you bet? I could get whole states to promote gambling as the way to get rich. I would caution against extremes in hard work and patriotism in moral conduct. I would convince the young that marriage is old-fashioned, that swinging is more fun, that what you see on TV is the way to be. And thus, I could undress you in public and I could lure you into bed with diseases for which there is no cure. In other words, if I were the devil, I'd just keep right on doing what he's doing. Good day. The words of Paul Harvey in 1965. Maybe he was a prophet in the media. I thank God for Paul Harvey. He brings a message to us today. Oh, we could add to it. We could revise the words a bit because we see that what he wrote about has actually occurred in spades, on steroids in our time. My wife and I were married just one year after Paul Harvey gave that address. And we have watched from California to the East Coast, and everywhere in between, we have watched all of this take place in churches across the land. As a lawyer, where 80% of my clientele came from the broader body of Christ, I have watched it all. It's painful. It's very painful. And God is watching it all, friends. And like Jesus of old, he's saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, 
Oh, America, America. Oh, professing Christians, you who persecute the prophets, you who reject my word, my will, and my ways, oh, I would, how I would have gathered you under my wing. But you would not. So if we would not, then where do we go? Who then is our Lord and our Master? Jesus said to the religious leaders of his day, You say that you're of the seed of Abraham, heirs according to the promise. But if you were of the seed of Abraham, you would do the works of Abraham. In other words, you'd live the same way, but you don't. Therefore, he said, you are of your father, the devil. That's what Jesus said. You're of your father, the devil. He said that to the respected religious leaders of his day. The denominational heads. The key broadcasters. The publishers. He said it to the key leaders of his day. You are of your father the devil. So we need to test ourselves according to Jesus' standards. Jesus said, not everyone who comes to me and says, Lord, Lord, is going to inherit my kingdom. Only those who do the will of my Father. So whose will are we doing? That's the question before us. If we're on the near edge of the second coming, friends, that's the question before us. And we have, finally, we have a a wonderful opportunity here. The opportunity is we still have time. We're still living on the planet. We still have time individually to confess before God what we have done, the error of our ways, the sin that has so easily beset us, and to set it aside, repent, and to turn and follow him with a whole heart. Will we do that? Who will be able to tell the difference? Jesus or the devil? Thanks for joining us. Get a copy of the book, King of the Mountain, $15 on our website. You've been listening to Viewpoint with Chuck Grissmeyer. Viewpoint is supported by the faithful gifts of our listeners. Let me urge you to become a partner with Chuck as a voice to the church declaring vision for the nation. Join us again next time on Viewpoint as we confront the issues of America's heart and home.